All right, I've been waiting for this day. This is great. Good to see everybody back. Um, it's funny, when I think about why I'm excited to be back, like I love the Bible study, I love prepping for I learn so much when I'm preparing. I almost always pick the book that I feel like I know the least about so that I can start studying it and learning it. That might get you nervous if you're thinking, hey, now we're going to hear a guy who doesn't know anything about what he's talking about. But usually I've tried to read, it, read a few things and learn a little something before we get up here, and we're going to be going through Zechariah. So I was really impressed when someone came up and said, Zechariah, all 14 chapters? And I thought, if you know there's 14 chapters in Zechariah, you're farther along than most, right? Like, that's not a book we get into a whole lot, which is exactly why I want to get into it. I feel like when we get into these books that make us think, um, you know, sometimes there's books in the Bible where we think, and we said this before when we were going over Revelation, as if God wrote it so that we could never understand. And Zechariah is one of them. In fact, Martin Luther, right, the big famous reformer, theologian in the 16th century, said about Zechariah, like, hey, I can't make heads or tails out of it. Like, I'm done with it. I don't get it. But I don't think we have to land there. Uh, God wrote Scripture. He gave us Scripture so that we could understand, not so that we'd be discouraged and not understand. So I'm sure there's always more to learn, but there's plenty we'll be able to get out of Zechariah. But that's actually not why I'm most excited to be back here. If you're new here, I just want to encourage you to keep coming because this is just an encouraging group. This is a good gang, so it's just good to see everybody again. Uh, I just love the way I see everybody enjoying each other, caring for each other. It's a, it's a good place to be. So, all you Georgia fans who are going to be really sad after Saturday, come back. We'll encourage you. We'll encourage, no, I'm just kidding. That was really risky. Notre Dame plays Georgia, and I can count like on one hand the number of times, the number of times I remember Notre Dame beating the SEC in the last 10 years, so this could be bad. For those of you who don't know, we're po- we pull for Notre Dame here. We pull hard for Notre Dame. <laughs> now, we're going to be looking at Zechariah, but that's actually not what we're going to read today. Today, I want to read a promise that was made to David, that we talk about a lot in here, uh, a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's just going to be, I'm going to read from the middle of 11 through 13, and then I'm going to flip real quick to 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 20. And I'll tell you, even before we get into it, essentially what's going on is there's a promise made to David. This is a huge promise. This is a promise made to David that you are going to have a son who's going to build the temple. It's right around, at this point, think 1000 B.C., nice round number, easy to remember, right? David has conquered Jerusalem, and he decides, I'm going to build my palace here. He builds his house, and then he's thinking, i got to build a house for the Lord. Right now, the Lord is in the Ark of the Covenant. You know that, remember the ark where uh, like 
followed along in a temple through the desert. If you don't know, think Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's actually what they're looking for. The Ark of the Covenant. Well, it's in a tent still. And David says, no, no, that's the presence of the Lord. He needs to have a house. I'm going to build him a house in Jerusalem. David's just conquered Jerusalem, and he set it up as his city where his palace is, and he's looking for a house for the Lord too. So this is what we hear. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at middle of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So David, you want to build me a house, but no, what I'm telling you is I don't want you to build me a house. If I'd wanted a house by now, I'd have one. I'm going to build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David says, okay, I'm going to build you a house. And the Lord says, no, no, David. I'm going to build you one, a family. I'm going to give you a son who will sit on the throne forever, and he will build the temple. Now, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 20. This is Solomon talking now. This is a son of David who became king right after David. And when the priest came out of the holy place... A cloud filled the house of the Lord. So what's just happened at this part is, we're about guessing 40 years later, Solomon's on the throne. Maybe not quite that long. You're not entirely sure how long it is. But Solomon has just finished building the temple. And now he's dedicating the temple. And what has happened is during the dedication... It says, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Can you imagine? Right, you're dedicating the temple and all of a sudden the cloud descends on it and everybody has to get out. Like God has come down and settled on the temple Then Solomon said to what I'm sure is a startled crowd, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell, dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. I'm sure they were standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be, to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, 
the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you, David, shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now, Solomon speaking, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. Big day, right? This is a big day. Promise fulfillment. Solomon stands there and announces promise fulfillment. Now we're going to get into details of Scripture here. But I want to tell you, just remind you, why we're going to get into it. And why we want to be careful when we look at prophecies and take time to say, look, here is a proper interpretation of this prophecy. Of course we can look at prophecies and we're going to look at Zechariah. And there will be a lot of things to come away with. But we want to say, look, if we're careful... We're convinced that God gave us these difficult passages so that we can properly interpret them. And here's why we want to spend time doing it. Because prophecy, properly interpreted, always encourages faithfulness. That we're going to look at this prophecy that's fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to look at Zechariah. And we're going to get into the details. And and we won't even get into the details as much as many others who make a a living. It's not like it's a big high paying living. But Bible scholars who spend decades, men and women, trying to figure out details. Why so much time? Is it really worth it? And I believe the answer is... Absolutely yes, when done right. Because when properly interpreted, Scripture always does the same thing. Prophecy always will do the same thing. It will always encourage faithfulness. I recently moved. I was telling some of you guys... uh, I told you last time we were meeting that downsized. We did. Karen and I found ourselves in a four-bedroom house where there's no longer anyone else in any of the bedrooms except ours. So we thought, okay, let's downsize. What will this be like? So we moved over to this uh, old house uh, on Hamilton Street behind Colonial Williamsburg. So I often take this walk uh, down Page Street and up Merrimack Trail and then down 2nd Street. It's about a little two-mile loop there. I take that walk a lot. And as I walk it, I realize, well, this is a different side of Williamsburg. I actually don't see a lot of these people or this crowd uh, when I'm over on this side. Part of the reason why is a lot of the people I see while I'm taking that loop, like they'll live in the motels or they're international students who are here for the summer. And they don't have cars, So there's a lot of people on that side who don't have cars. So I'm walking and they're walking. It's like this is the only way you're actually going to see them is if you walk around. I want to tell you, we've been thinking a lot about how do we bless these people. I've invited some of that crowd to the chapel here. 
Oftentimes when I begin to talk to them about coming here, one of the first things they say is, uh, when they hear me talking about a church, is to say, oh, can, can we walk to it? Like, for that, can we walk to it? And I think, ah, uh, probably not. It's a pretty far walk. So we've been thinking, it's not something hidden, like here at the chapel, Travis has announced, like we're playing, praying about church plant. Church plant. And, and I walk that circle and I pray about it. Like, Lord, is, is there something you want to do here? Is there? Just what do you want to do? How do we reach these people? And I tell you, this one day, uh, as I'm walking it, I have um, this fear coming over me. And it's just a fear of uh, what would it take really to reach these people? Like, what, what kind of sacrifices would it take? And, and do I really want to reach these people? You know, like at all costs, are you willing to make sacrifices to invest in this crowd, in this neighborhood? And I find myself being anxious over it. So then I think, ah, I never like that feeling, right? Anxiety is never a good sign. I have in my head this story whenever I feel fearful or anxious. And it's the story of when Jesus eventually, right, he, he meets Jairus. It's, it's in the Bible, three different places. I'm thinking of Luke chapter 8. And, and as he's, what he's doing is Jesus is out walking. And this man comes and says, my daughter, my daughter is about to die. Can you come with me? Come with me. And heal her. And so Jesus says, sure. And along the way, though, another woman comes along who's sick, touches Jesus' robe, and is healed. Remember, for some of you might know, the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, she's healed. In this story, right, where Jesus is going with this man, Jairus, to go heal his daughter, can you imagine the dad? They come on, come on, come on, she's dying. And then Jesus stops the whole show when someone touches his robe and is healed and says, who touched me? The disciples are like, Lord, what are you talking about? There's people all around you. Everybody's touching you. They're crushing us, actually. And Jesus said, no, someone touched me. I felt the power go out from me. And so there's an exchange that goes on. The woman comes forward. Jesus has these super kind words, right? Just, daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, your faith has healed you. In the meantime... Someone comes to the dad and says, your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Can you imagine what the dad's feeling? Jesus turns to him and says, don't be afraid, just believe. Oh, man. Like, you can't take that phrase with us every moment of every day. Don't be afraid, just believe. So that's the phrase I'm focusing on as I'm walking, praying, saying, Lord, do you want to do a church plant here? And if you're asking me, am I really ready to do whatever you need me to do in order to reach these people who you love? Lord, I just want to say, I don't want to be afraid. I believe, I believe, I believe. Now there's something else that's been causing me fear. My daughter, who's in law school, is searching for a summer internship job. She hasn't found one yet. There's this strange anxiety that keeps pressing in on me that says, she's not going to find one. It's all a waste of time. Your daughter, who's been so faithful, studying so hard, borrowing so much money... 
At least I'm not borrowing it. No, I'm just kidding. Borrowing so much money isn't going to find a job. And then what will happen? Like, that's not fair. Lord, that's not fair. And I feel this anxiety crushing in. Now, that's actually not the anxiety I'm thinking about right now. I'm thinking about church plan anxiety. But as I'm praying, don't be afraid. Just believe. Oh, Lord, help me not to be afraid. Just believe. It's like Jesus interrupted me. It's like he just kind of came flooding in and said, I raised her. I raised her. Here's what my mind did in a split second. I raised her is the end of the story. He keeps walking. He raises Jairus' daughter. Don't be afraid, Jairus. I raised her. I have power to remedy your fears. I raised her. Here's where my mind went. And he raised my daughter. He has raised my daughter. John chapter 5, Jesus gives a prophecy. Here's what he says. If anyone has my words, hears my words and believes, this person crosses from life to death. That this person is resurrected right now. That was Jesus' promise in John chapter 5. And here's what he said. That's happening now. A resurrection now. And then he says, oh, and there's a day coming and has not come when all will hear my voice and come out of the grave. And those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. In a moment when I thought what I'm afraid of, what I'm really afraid of is What are you calling me to do in regards to a church plant? It's like Jesus interrupted and said, I actually know what you're worried about most. You're anxious over your daughter. And here I want to remind you, don't you see evidence in her life, what she says and does all the time, that she believes she's mine, I've raised her? And then he puts me right in contact with this prophecy that there is a day coming. I will raise her on that day too. I've got her. Oh, I'm walking down Page Street and I put my head down. I'm reading my prayer list on the phone. And I put my head down because I don't want to see everybody see me start crying. And wonder who's the weirdo crying as he walks around. But it's like this promise, this prophecy, it was like, forget about the fear. I've got her. And it was this encouragement to be faithful. And I knew it was him. Dick Woodward always says there's always like two voices, right? So when you hear something in your head, who told you? If it's something evil, you know it's not the Lord telling you. If it's something good like this, it's not the devil telling you this. It's the Lord speaking. This is what he does. This is what he does with his promises, with his word, his prophetic word. He brings encouragement and assurances. He's so good. That's why we're going to look at Zechariah. Because we will never be done needing encouragement. I have talked to people since then who have said, in nice words. Isn't it a little irrational to worry about your daughter like that? And I think, absolutely, fear is always irrational. (laughs) 
But here comes some rationale. Here comes some reason. Here comes the Lord. Don't be afraid. Just believe. So, prophecy, properly interpreted, will always do this. It will always encourage faithfulness. But, I think it's fair to say, okay, properly interpreted. What are you saying? Can you improperly interpret? Absolutely. We see it all the time, right? Hey, the Lord's coming back. When? Tomorrow. Right over there. You know, like we see those sort of things, right? If you don't, you need to go to like Venice Beach in California. I'm sure there's someone out there in a van right now with it. It's always going on. So can we really interpret properly? Yeah, we can. Are we saying we'll all, like we're done? We don't have to look any longer? We're sure we've got every passage perfectly? No. No, we're constantly surrendered. Like, Lord, here's what I'm persuaded. But I want to say this. We can have a... We can be sure of how God speaks through prophecy. I want to say three things about properly interpreting prophecy. Three principles kind of that we know and we hang on to them. One is prophecy can be interpreted literally. Literally. Jesus told his disciples and everyone who would listen over and over, on the third day, I will rise from the dead. I will rise from the dead. I will rise from the dead. He was speaking quite literally. He was prophesying literally what was going to happen. On the third day, churches have gotten in big trouble by saying, oh, that was just symbolic, metaphoric, not literal, that he never really rose from the dead, that it was a spiritual thing, that he lives on, and we all can live on, and it gets real mushy and weird. No, no, that was literal. Well, how do you know? Well, the the context in which it was written Right? Like he's speaking plain language, that's a clue. But even more so, after he rose, what did he do? It's like he went out of his way to let all his disciples and everybody know you're not looking at a ghost. Touch me. Give me food to eat. Right? There's all this scriptural evidence. Scripture will explain to us that that prophecy was literal. But sometimes scripture is equally clear that prophecy can be interpreted symbolically. And the reason we know is because after we hear the prophecy, we hear him interpret it. For instance, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 says, I saw the Son of Man moving in and out of seven lampstands with seven stars in his hand. So is this literal language or symbolic language? Well, I think we could say, we're not sure yet. Let's read on. By the time we get to the end of Revelation 1, what do we see? The seven stars in the hands of the Son of Man are the seven angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Scripture's telling us what you're seeing, it's symbolic. Like, don't take it literally. He's not actually walking among lampstands. 
That's a symbol. It's what you're seeing, but it's a symbol of something else. You can make mistakes if you start grabbing onto Scripture that's supposed to be interpreted symbolically, and we begin to interpret it literally. We, we just want to be careful. That creates a tension in some of us, right? It actually creates a tension probably in all of us. I don't want to misinterpret. I want to properly interpret. How can I know when it's literal and when it's symbolic? Okay, let me add to the tension a little bit. Sometimes the same prophecy must be interpreted, can be interpreted, even must be interpreted, both literally and symbolically. Wow, okay. Like when? Like in the passage we just read today. In 1 Kings chapter 8, in maybe the key prophecy of the entire Old Testament, you're going to have a son who will build the temple. Should that prophecy be interpreted literally? Absolutely. How do you know? Scripture tells us, 1 Kings chapter 8, what does Solomon do? He gets up and announces, the prophecy to my father is literally being fulfilled. Right here, I'm a son of David, and I'm sitting on his throne, and I built the temple. Couldn't be clearer. Well, then why do we say also symbolically? Because Jesus came along. And actually, we know from John chapter 7 that all the teachers in Israel knew there's another son of David coming. And they were waiting for him. He was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. They knew that, yes, Solomon fulfills the prophecy, but he himself is a bit of a symbol. So he literally fulfills it. And he's a symbol of what's to come. Some people use, uh, they say like he's a type. He was just a type. It's like he literally is. He's a real guy. But he's foreshadowing a coming time. But here's where it gets really wild. It's just not Solomon who's a symbol. A literal fulfillment and a symbol. The temple itself was a literal fulfillment and a symbol That's why in John chapter 2, Jesus, standing in the temple, says to everybody, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the disciples admit that even we thought he was speaking literally. Everybody thought he was speaking literally. But they said, oh, after the resurrection, we realized The temple he was talking about was himself. That a son is going to come who's going to build me a temple literally happens in 1 Kings chapter 8. But it's always pointing forward to Jesus. We might not always agree on every prophecy we look at, But I think we can agree, I think we have to agree, that prophecy can be interpreted in any of these three ways. 
And if we get too nervous about, hey, it has to be literal or it has to be symbolic, we're missing it. It's like we just have to be patient and keep looking at it to see. Okay. If we're going to be studying Zechariah, why look at 1 Kings chapter 8? Two reasons. One is, I'll put up this timeline real quick. It's because I want you to know, these are the three, I'm convinced, biggest highlights in the entire Old Testament. We're going to be looking at that last one, Zechariah and the Restoration. But I want us to know, this is a big moment that's going on when we look at Zechariah. You read the Old Testament, and it's actually not full of highlights. It's mostly full of lowlights. It's almost like, man, you're really rooting for Israel. And they just keep messing up, messing up, messing up, messing up. Three giant highlights in the Old Testament. They're all connected. Joshua leads them into the Promised Land. That's right around 1400 B.C. Mostly lowlights after that. Read Book of Judges. It's a disaster. Right? Mostly lowlights. Then the highlight of the Old Testament. What we just read in 1 Kings chapter 8. Right? The, the temple, it's dedicated. Highlight. After Solomon, almost straight lowlights. All the way to Zechariah. That's why Zechariah, like, he's returning from where? Babylon. Like, that was like the lowest of the lowlights. So here he's back. But what happens in Zechariah? Boom! Huge highlight. They restore, they're restored to the land. So this is one of the reasons I bring up Solomon. There's going to be a connection here. If we're going to properly interpret Zechariah, we're going to have to remember what's going on around it. It's a big deal. This promised fulfillment. But the other reason we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 8 is because it allows us to see that clearly sometimes prophecy must be understood both literally and symbolically. Sometimes symbolically and sometimes only literally. And as we move through Zechariah, we're going to see prophecy and we're going to see times when we have to use all three principles. Sometimes it is literally fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 9 says, The Lord, the King, will come to you riding on a donkey. That's Zechariah 9. This is fulfilled literally. Zechariah 1, we're going to see, Hey, there's four horns. These are the four horns that persecuted Israel and four craftsmen are going to come and, and pay them back. This is clearly symbolic, right? We're also going to see in Zechariah this guy named Zerubbabel. Here's the thing about Zerubbabel. He's going to build the temple. He's going to rebuild the temple. Here's another thing about Zerubbabel. He's the son of David. He's in the genealogy in Matthew. In Zechariah, we're going to see a son of David who builds the temple. Hello. This is reminding us that sometimes prophecy is both literal and symbolic. And we're just going to have to look at it carefully to know what's going on. And remembering 1 Kings chapter 8, it's going to be important when we dig into Zechariah. Not in every chapter, 
but enough chapters. That's a lot of detail. But here's why we get into the detail. Because prophecy, properly interpreted, always encourages faithfulness. And we are going to need this encouragement in varying degrees every day. And the people who God brings us into, into their worlds and people we encounter, they're going to need encouragement too. And the way we're going to bring it, the only way to bring encouragement that can actually really lift us up when we run into life's hardest situations is the Lord. In His Word, Jesus said, My words are spirit and they are life. We're going to dig into Zechariah because we're convinced that His Word can encourage us and restore us and give us life each day and that we can share it with our friends. Because prophecy, properly interpreted, always encourages faithfulness. Amen. Have a wonderful week.